the scripture will remain. And if it's done well, it, it really is better than any missionary that could go there because it's going to speak to their heart, they're going to understand, and they're going to know the gospel. And the gospel will flow without any other outsider being there. So this is kind of the passion of our, our organization. Um, <clears throat> a little bit of my story is that I had actually felt uh, I read the book Through Gates of Splendor, the story of Jim Elliott as a high school student. Uh, Jim Elliott's one of the five that went to the jungles of Ecuador and was killed by the Wadarani Indians. <clears throat> and uh, I thought, you know, that's kind of intimidating to, to think about that. Um, but I was encouraged by Nate Saint the pilot. And I thought, well, you know, that's like a task. It's tangible. It's a skill. I bet I could be a pilot. I think I'm a, an encouraging person. I could fly people around. I can encourage them while they're with me, pray for them. So I actually went to school thinking I would be a, a missionary pilot. And uh, got into the courses and realized, you know, I've never really been that mechanical. I wasn't the guy that was like working on the car with my dad on weekends. I wasn't really like that. And so I kind of had an idealistic image in my head of like a half missionary, half pilot. But if you're going to be a pilot in the jungle, you've got to be a pilot. You've got to be a mechanic. You've got to be able to make your own parts. You've got to do all this stuff. And I was like, hold on, I don't think that's me. I was having like five-hour courses on DC electricity and airframe mechanics. And I was like, where's the Bible? <laughs> so I stopped that and changed back to a, a, an ancient language major and thought, well, yeah, you know, if I could read the Bible in original languages, that would be pretty exciting. And I started thinking, what could I do with that? And it kind of brought me back full circle to say, hey, if other people don't have the Bible yet, this is a super valuable thing that they need. So, uh, so I finished a, a degree in ancient languages at Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then um, went on to do a master's in linguistics at GIAL. It's the uh, linguistics school in Dallas that most people through Wycliffe go through. So, so my, my training is in uh, linguistics with uh, emphasis in Bible translation. So that's my training to become a, a linguist translator with Wycliffe. Um, so while I was kind of on that journey, something that I found a little frustrating was that people saw me as outgoing and extroverted. And they said, hmm, translation, it seems like maybe you're too outgoing for that. And that just sitting in a room alone for a while isn't for you. And I thought, I'm not sure if you understand translation, because I think there's a lot of interaction with people that goes on with this. And so, but as I would talk to Wycliffe people, um, I didn't really feel like I, they could tell me exactly what happened in the process. So what I did was I, I learned about that, and I thought that that was a good presentation to give to people as they were interested in hearing more about Wycliffe and what we do. So that's what I will tell you about today, is how do we do this thing called Bible translation? So, for translating, we have two different pieces. We have the source language, and we have the receptor language, or the target language, right? So for us, most of us in here, I'm guessing, are probably first language speakers of English. So for me, the target language is English. The source language was Greek or Hebrew, right? So it's coming to us that way. Um, but then as we look around the world and we see these languages, right? These are the receptor languages. So we want to pull the meaning from the source language and once we have the meaning, put that into the receptor language, like the best way that it can be understood. So that's our goal. And we have three guiding principles to get us there. We want it to be natural. We want it to be clear. And we want it to be accurate. So if we can keep the message natural, clear, and accurate, then we feel like we're doing justice to the word of God. And so this, this is how, this is what what guides us. 
And then we say, how? Well, so let me tell you. So um, now is the time where we need a little bit of interaction. So uh, let's see. I need, let's do like this. So I'm going to divide the room into like this third and like this two thirds, right? So I need someone from this third to volunteer and come up and pick a language from this uh, poster. Who will come? Anyone? Usually the young, spunky ones want to jump up. We're not so spunky? All right, Mark. All right, Mark. Come on. OK. Well, I like your shirt, so that's a good start. So yeah, pick one. Uh, Make, yeah, pick a good one. Preferably one that's like at least kind of easy to pronounce because we're going to be saying it a lot. But whatever, whatever you like. Yeah. And then we'll tell us which country and then the population. And then we'll play out the scenario. Ligby. 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 Sure, we'll call it Ligby. It's a language spoken in Ghana. Language spoken in Ghana. This is in Africa. And the population of Ligby language is? 19,000. 19,000 people, 19,000 speakers. Great, thanks. You can take a seat. Thanks for all your work. <laughs> OK, so, so we're going to send, so we're going to focus on getting translations done for the Ligby people of Ghana. And I might need someone to look this up, but I, what would a national language of Ghana be? Could it be English or French? Who, who has that? French, probably French, right? I think there's a, the national language of, of Ghana would be French. So there's a French, yeah, if, if Austin can tell us, that would be great. But we'll pretend it's French until we know something else. OK, so, uh, so we're going to have French, and we're going to have Ligby. English, OK, that's even easier for us as English speakers. English, OK. So now, from, now what we're going to do is we're going to call this third of the group Ligby people. So you are now all Ligby. Uh, Ligby language community people, you speak Ligby, but as we know, you probably also speak English, so that's good, so we can communicate, at least that on some level, right? To do trade, to do other stuff. But Ligby is your mother tongue, your first language, okay? So what we need now is we need a volunteer from this side of the room that will be very involved. Are you also Mark? Mark, come on up. You know, come on, great. <clears throat> Come on over. OK, Mark and Trevor, thanks for coming up. Great. OK, Mark has just volunteered to be a translation facilitator. So let me tell you about our translation facilitator. You have graduated from, high, from college with a degree in something. And then you went on for further training, like me, in linguistics and translation theory and methods. Great. Then with that training and cross-cultural training as well, you went on to Go over here. So come on over. We'll send you over right. to the Welcome. Ligby people. Ligby. Right. So Mark is here, and he's going to come. And the first thing he's going to start doing is he's going to start doing like the preparation phase, right? It's his job to learn what's already happening with the Ligby people in their community. Like, are there already a group of believers from missionaries coming through before, from people that have become believers through reading the English Bible, or that kind of stuff? Or maybe some, some missionaries have come previously, and so there might be some churches growing up. Or maybe there's not. Or maybe there's a lot of churches, and those churches are fighting, because sometimes you get to places and find that out, right? 
So then what you're going to do is it's your job to kind of learn the lay of the land, who the key players are, and what's going on. And then your job will be to designate either a team or a small team of uh, mother tongue translators. So these are the people that speak Ligby that you're going to work with to do translation. Okay. So you need at least one, maybe two, mother tongue translators from Ligby. Who will that be? Who will help me? Anyone? Oh, we have Andy in the back. Great. Come on up. You got to come to the front. And anyone else? Who else? Who else? Anyone else? Uh, Elias. Elias. Great. We, we like a bigger translate, mother tongue translation team because it means there's a better chance of getting things done. Great. Good. Good. Good colors. So, okay. So we have Andy, Elias, Elias, and Mark. Great. Okay. So now, what Mark is going to do is he's going to spend time with Elias and Andy teaching them all about the translation material that he learned in his, in his master's degree, in his program. Translation theory, method, what do you do when you find an idiom? Like when they say uh, things like, you know, in English we say, pull my leg, but we're not really pulling a leg. We're saying it's funny, right? Or you're telling a joke or you're trying to trick me, right? Like he's going to teach you like how to do that kind of stuff in Ligby when you do that, okay? So you guys kind of get a feel for it, right? And so then uh, also how to do it. So what you'll do is you'll, your source language will be English. And so because it's English, you're going to have a big choice of, of, of text to use because we have a lot of Bibles. I don't know what it is now, 40 plus 100. I, I don't know. So there's some standard ones. So you'd probably use a good New World no, message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so then you'll take some English text and you'll internalize it and you'll put it down in the best Ligby that you can. And that's your job. And that's what he'll help you do. And, and nowadays, a lot of teams are starting with Luke. If they're, a lot of teams are starting with Luke because in a bigger picture plan, uh, there is the Jesus film. And the Jesus film can be, uh, the, the text that the Jesus film uses is all, all verses from Luke. So if you guys are translating Luke, then you basically have the script for the Jesus film. And then Faith Comes by Hearing or the Jesus Film Group, they can come in and help you guys with the Jesus Film pretty early on. So that's kind of cool. But if you're a Muslim background country, a lot of times we'll start with Old Testament stuff. But I'm guessing since you're Ghana, I don't think it's really a Muslim country. I don't think. So we'll, we'll say it's Luke, OK? So then that's what you guys will do. So you tell them how, and you start doing it. And then you write it down. Or probably type it. Yeah, type it. OK, so then once you guys feel like between you and between him, you feel like you have a pretty good handle on things, on a little story. Maybe you want to start with you know, first few chapters or get a good story. Uh, maybe it's like, uh, you know, I don't know, think of a good story in Luke. I don't know, some good story. Prodigal son, that's a great story. So let's say you've got the prodigal son written out. Now, the next step is getting other Ligby people to, to get their feedback, right? Because you guys like it, and it's natural because you wrote it the way that you would naturally write it. But now we've got to make sure that it's really understandable and, and, and clear. So who will, who will be part of the comprehension checking or the review committee to review the prodigal son story? We need two or three or five people to come and either read or hear. We, we can have you come if you want to come, even though you're not technically Ligby. <laughs> So sometimes we have people that aren't part of the language community that want to give input. And when that happens, we try to be really polite. But since, since this is a scenario, we're glad to have you. So come on over here. Who else will be part of the review committee? Anyone else? We need some. 
We need some, you'll get some exercise. All right, sure, you're on the edge, we'll count you. Yes, you're on the edge. Come on over. And anyone else? Okay, so you, uh, what's your name? Luke. Luke, you stand over there. Oh, because Luke, right, get it. Okay, I got it. Okay, okay. so we're delineating the thing. Okay, so now you are the review committee, and usually we'd like a bigger review committee, five to 12 to even 20 or 30 people. Get a good high five in there, yeah. And what's your name? Terry. Terry, thanks, Terry. Great, so um, depending on the situation, I haven't researched the Ligby situation exactly, but if they're a, a non-literate community, then we might be doing reading. These guys might read it, or we might do some audio recording so that they can listen. But if, they're, if they are literate and they have been reading English and they're already good at reading, then we'd give them the text to read themselves. Now, something I should mention at this point is my wife is trained in literacy, and so part of her job would be to help the literacy program develop with whatever people group we would be working with. So a lot of times it goes hand in hand, and a lot of times there's no Bible because the language hasn't been written down yet. So part of the work would be to help that happen with a, kind of the same way you gather some you know, main players, the key stakeholders, the people that want to see it happen, and you help them figure out how to develop their language the best and writing an alphabet and how to do all that kind of stuff. So um, let's say that. Former English teacher. Yeah, oh, great, perfect, yeah. <laughs> So that's the same kind of thing, like literacy <laughs> curriculum, that right. kind of stuff, right? And primers, yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. Okay, so then uh, we'll have you guys look at it, and then you get feedback. And so part of the training that Elias and Andy have, Elias, Elias, that Elias and Andy have are how to ask those questions, right? Because you can ask, oh, you know, what it say, and they can tell it back. But you also want to ask questions like, um, who do you think this is written for? And if they say, oh yeah, this is stories for kids, then we go, hmm, we must have done something not quite right. Maybe we indicated that it was like a fairy tale by some of the narrative we chose, right? Maybe we used the kind of narrative marker that we shouldn't use if it's a true story instead of they're thinking it's a fairy tale. And, we, and, and then we go, okay, well, let's ask a few more questions like that to get at what they're thinking about what was written so that we can really get to how we're going to write the things the best way, right? So then that will give us clues to recheck some of those things. There's a lot of things we can do um, to check like discourse, right? The big picture of the story. Like are we using the right kind of markers for the things that, we're, that we really want to get across? So that's what we would hear from them and their feedback, of course. And if they come back and they say, oh yeah, the prodigal son, like, it was really cool how he took all the money, and he's our favorite guy, and we want to be just like that. And you go, maybe we've kind of not indicated. Yeah, right, something like that, right? So you kind of look for, for tells on how they're misunderstanding, so you can kind of correct that in another, in another situation, in another um, review session, right? So then you guys will give your feedback. You guys will adjust stuff, and then we'll come back again. And we might use the same committee, but it depends on how much access we have to mother tongue speakers. We might use a new committee for the second round so that they're not kind of, um, you know, they're not influenced by what they heard in the past. So, uh, in fact, if we have a lot of access to a lot of mother tongue speakers. So, and then this kind of goes back and forth until you guys are all happy with it and, and, and they're answering all the questions the right way and you guys feel like it's still really natural from how you wrote it. So, they're going to make sure it's clear and you're going to make sure it's still natural. So. That's like the review checking process. So, very review cool. committee, thank you very much. You can sit down. Luke, you can sit down. You did it. That's great. Okay, uh, stand between these guys now. Okay, so you guys over there. Okay, now, good job, Mark. We're doing it. Okay, so now, now we need someone from over here to come. 
for a small but crucial role. Who will come? <laughs> Start saying someone's name. This is interesting. Okay, Austin, come on up. Austin, I'm Trevor. I think we'll yes. talk later. I yes. think. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Um, so uh, this is Austin. Austin is representing our translation consultant. So a translation consultant is someone who has already gone through this process as a translation facilitator, already done a job like this, and understands it and knows it, but then has also, on top of that, had further studies in Greek or Hebrew. Here, because we're, we've chosen to do Luke, we'll say that your studies have been deeper into Greek so that you can check the Greek work that they're doing. Great, well, yeah, there we go. So just perfect. <laughs> So, um, right, so then he's the translation consultant. All right, you've got to be over there because you're still in Igby. And right now, most of our consultants are from the West, but we're working on getting more consultants from Africa. Um, but right now, most of them are American or European. But here we are. So, uh, so you fly to Ghana. And by the time Austin gets to Ghana to work with the team, he's gotten their, he's gotten their Luke, and he's been looking at it. And you say... Now, how can Austin look at the Igby to make sure that they're doing Igby right? And that's a good question. And the solution we have for that is something that we call a back translation. Now, of course, like we said, there are many translations in English, but what Austin is seeing is not a translation in English. What Austin will see is the Igby translation written out as Igby, and then an English equivalent written directly below all the Igby words so that Austin has insight into how the Igby language works. And so if you read all the English, you get the point, but it would never be considered an English translation. And so this is how an outsider gets a view into the language. And so Austin comes up on and he says, oh, yeah, like, I see that you're talking about someone's liver and stuff. And they go, oh, yeah. And he's like, usually we'd say heart. Like, oh, yeah, well, Igby's emotions aren't in their heart. Igby's emotions are in their liver. So we want to make sure that we understand and we do the right thing. And so he's like, yeah, I understand what you're doing. That sounds good. So even though he doesn't speak Igby, he still gets to ask those questions to see how those things line up so that he can understand it. So that's how the consultant works. And yeah, sometimes making the back translation is a lot of work, but it's really necessary part because then what you're going to do is when you see the English, you're going to check that against the Greek. Because now, because they don't have Greek training, they'll, they'll start to get some. But because the Igby people didn't start with Greek training, they're not starting with Greek, they're starting with English. And so we have to make sure that because it's come from Greek to English to Igby, we haven't lost something in accuracy on the path. So now we check the Igby back against the, the initial in the Greek. And that's his job. So good job. So, so the way this happens is uh, the consultant will usually do three or four trips a year to the project and usually be consulting on four to five projects around the world. Usually they try to keep them uh, in a related language or related area. Like you probably would have done your first translation also in Ghana or in a neighboring country where culture and other things are really similar. So you have more insight to Igby than if maybe you would have done a project in Thailand or something like that. But any experience is a good experience. So that's how it works. And so you make trips over time. And so um, we see historically that most translations done uh, this way usually can take 12 to 15 years-ish. And that's kind, of the, that's kind of if there's no related language and uh, the team stays strong. Because we also have to remember, at this point, if Andy or Elias, if something happens to them, uh, 
they make a choice that they don't want to help anymore or a health problem comes along, then Mark needs to look for more people to be mother tongue translators, right? And so he's going to have to train again. So that's why it's good to have two or three people on your mother tongue translation team so that you can keep kind of some uh, consistency in your team and have more people giving input. And if something happens to Mark, you know, he's a supported missionary, at least at this point. If his support goes low or if he has kids or one of his kids has a special need that can't be met on the field, he might have to come home. And then we have to put a new translation facilitator in his place. And then we have to find one and they have to raise their support. So assuming everything goes well and all those pieces stay in place for a while, it's still a 10 to 12 to 15 year project. Uh, but, that would be for the new, I'm thinking New Testament. Yeah, yeah, that'd be for the New Testament. And then it can go quicker. There are things that help it go quicker. Uh, if, if Andy and Elias are really, really great at this and they really get it, it can go a lot quicker. And if, and if Mark is good at it, then yeah, so we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah, so uh, Austin, thank you. Of course. Great job consulting. You did it. Uh, then, once, uh, once the consultant comes, a lot of checks, you guys do community checking, a lot of reviews, you get through all the New Testament, then a lot of times they'll do uh, a dedication, right? Where all the New Testaments come and then the Igby people are excited and we do a big celebration to kind of announce the fact that now, you know, we have full access to the Igby New Testament. So that would be kind of maybe a final piece. Uh, a lot of times then uh, the, the translation facilitator would stay on to keep working on Old Testament stuff. A lot of times the next things are done are, are Genesis and Exodus and uh, kind of a line through the Old Testament before it's filled out completely to kind of get a good idea of how things started and some of the, um, you know, some of the Pentateuch and some of the, the, the prophets and that kind of stuff. Um, so that's kind of the process you guys would go through. Great. Okay. Thanks, Mark. We did it. I didn't feel like talking. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And then you guys are hopefully part of the thriving Igby faith community, keeping things going. And that's it. Great. We are. Great. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right. So here's the, here's the thing. So we have the source language and the people involved. Who is involved to make sure things stay natural? Mother tongue translator. Yep, and who's involved to make sure it's clear? Yep, uh, I, I didn't really say comprehension checkers to you, but comprehension checkers, review committee. And then make sure it's accurate? Consultant. Consultant, yes. And then it was like, what did that, what did that facilitator do anyway? Uh, <laughs> made it happen, right? So we need someone uh, to be the impetus sometimes to, to come in and, and see how things can get going. So. So, so this is it. This is kind of how it happens. And um, then, of course, if it's a really, really well-planned project and the community is really involved, uh, people were able to get access to scripture right as it was checked by the consultant. Because as soon as it's checked by the consultant, we want it in people's hands. And so nowadays, we're doing a lot of things that would be considered like incremental publishing, like publishing at different times along the path, so that as Luke is available, people can start using it right away, especially now with um, so much technology, you can get it out as a, you know, on the, on the version app or on some other kind of, um, there's actually an app called the Bible app that, that we developed where they, they can work and put it right into the Bible app so that the Igby community could have it on their phones or on their computers like right away, almost right away. And then try to get it out and get it, get it being used so that, you know, the kingdom can grow and discipleship can happen. And hopefully, uh, as Wycliffe workers, we're not intentionally 
discipling church leaders. We want those church leaders to kind of grow up themselves as they interact with scripture, but we're definitely there to encourage and, and we want to see it happen. So uh, as Wycliffe people, we don't do church planting, but a lot of times we see that happen as a result of people interacting with the scripture. So that's kind of our role in that aspect of things. Um, yeah, and if we've done a good job preparing the way and connecting all the people that, that care and that want to see it happen, then they're really making it making it work themselves, finding ways they can use scripture. So, and yeah, any questions about that whole thing? Yeah. So are the people he's working with, uh, are they full-time staff or are they just helping out? That's a good question. So uh, the mother tongue translators, are they staff? So in a lot of places, yeah, they're paid and that would be paid through like uh, project funding. So me as a Wycliffe missionary, I'm supported by my church and other individuals, but then uh, Wycliffe as a big organization has major donors that give, and that money goes to projects that we do. So if we're doing the IBB translation project, there's funds that we raise or that we tap into through Wycliffe's own support raising that goes to be funneled as you know, a, a salary for a mother tongue translator, a second mother tongue translator, that kind of stuff. So the ideal would be to have someone Ideal would be to have someone paid so they can focus. Um, I just gave an example of Wycliffe doing the funding, but even a more ideal situation is that there's a local community of Igby believers and they can support the mother tongue translator. And we see that happening in places too. So we wanna make it happen and we wanna encourage the faith community taking as much ownership as they can of it, but where that's not really gonna be realistic, maybe there's no faith community yet, then the funding will come from outside where it needs to. Yeah. 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 So on the heart question, in Greek, I think it's the word spankna, right? And that's actually the stomach, liver. It's kind of unsure about. So heart, what basically somebody doing just that? Yeah. Yeah. For us. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would say, in a case where, in a, in a case where a translation is not conveying the meaning that needs to be conveyed, then it's then it's not accurate anymore. And so the accuracy has to come in, in, in how it's received when, when, when people hear it. Oh. I scared her. Oh. 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 <laughs> so cute. Do you want a little hug? Oh. That's fun. Oh, no, a foot's stuck. Oh. Daddy. Yeah, yeah, good questions. All good questions. Yeah, I have a question. Yeah. How, how do you keep the facilitator's theological bent from influencing an entire yeah. group of people? Yeah, it's a good question. So the hope is that really the, the, hope is that really the mother tongue translators are, are doing the translation um, and that any theological bent could be mitigated also by the consultant. And you probably won't, even though it's ideal, 
it's ideal linguistically to have the same consultant on the project the whole time. It doesn't always happen that way. And so uh, if a second or third consultant comes around, like the first consultant would probably have some questions. Uh, to become a consultant, you have to be certified by an international organization of consultants. So there's some pretty rigorous training to become a consultant. And I think there's some theological testing as well, just to make sure that you're not really have a, a pet thing that you want to make sure gets included. Um, so, so yeah, they're, they're certified by an international organization. And then uh, projects pull from that pool to have consultants. So hopefully the consultant would be a check on that. And you know, hopefully the Holy Spirit as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, Tara. Yeah, good questions. So Wycliffe membership is about 6,000 people. So we're at about that size. Um, and we're the, there's a few translation organizations, but Wycliffe's the biggest. Uh, the next one would be Pioneer Bible Translators. Uh, and they're, if Wycliffe's 6,000, they're like 600, 700. And then a few other uh, smaller ones, Lutheran Bible Translators and Aramaic Bible Translators. But they're pretty small. Um, Compar comparatively. And then how many are we completing a year? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure how many we're completing a year. It might be, I don't know. I'd hate to guess and be way off. But yeah, we have a lot in progress. Uh, yeah, I'd hate to guess and be wrong. Five to 10, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yes, I see a hand. Igby. Igby to Greek, like mm -hmm. where you said, okay, now we go back to Greek and see if they sort of jive. Yeah, yeah. But is that through kind of like final confirmation process? That, or is there an actual team of people that you have that actually really double check the work and see that the translation's pretty darn good? Yeah, that's, that's the job of the consultant. Oh, the consultant yeah, the consultant. Yeah, that's what they're trained to do and certified to do. Yeah. It's really true. Uh, I'll say one more thing. If we come into a community where there are no believers yet, then we'll be working with a mother tongue translator who's not a believer. And a lot of times uh, in, in situations where that's been the scenario, usually a few years in that person believes because they have so much exposure to the, to the gospel and to the word. So uh, in, in any case, as long as the person's a mother tongue speaker and they're willing to work and really, really get to you know, understanding the meaning and passing it on, then, then we can work with them. So just as a Another piece to mention. So uh, what am I doing now? Uh, I'm here in San Diego, and this is where my assignment is. And uh, my wife and I have had a few assignments in the past. We actually took our first assignment in Bangladesh to work there with, uh, with people uh, that needed scripture. There were about 11 or 12 projects there that needed to be worked on. I went there as a, a translation facilitator linguist, and my wife is a literacy worker. Uh, but as we got, 
as we got there for a few months, my wife's health just got worse. Like she had some pre-existing conditions with eczema and allergies. And after four or five months, it was just unlivable for us to be there. So on advice of older people, uh, older, wiser people, they said, oh, why don't you go home, recover? My wife was saying, we love it so much. We can stay. I know it's hard. And they said, yes, it's hard. But if you go and recover, then maybe God can use you somewhere else. <laughs> like, oh, good perspective. So we came back here. Her home is here in San Diego. And so we came back here for a little while. Actually did recruiting with Wycliffe for about four years and met a couple on their way to work with Roma people, uh, otherwise known as gypsies, in Bulgaria and thought that, yeah, living in the major European capital city of Sofia might be okay for her health. And as we explored that, it seemed like it was all uh, green lights for us. So we went on to work with the Roma people in Bulgaria in 2012 and spent about three or four years there uh, doing the same thing, hoping to get involved in some projects and learning Bulgarian and meeting the Roma people. And then there was a kind of a shift in the way the company, the, the organization was working. And we were moved on <laughs> to do something else. It's a long story. But anyway, so we came back home to San Diego, realizing we didn't really want to get uprooted again and thought, well, what should we do now? What should we do now? And uh, my wife's pastor uh, said, you know, our church has been growing a lot recently, but we really want to start reaching cross-culturally. And in fact, do you know that there's about 80,000 Iraqis over in El Cajon? And we think we'd like to start doing church planting over there. And we said, well, and they said, do you want a church plant? We said, well, we're not church planters, uh, but that's interesting because if there's 80,000 Iraqis there, I know that there's still about five or six languages from Iraq that don't have the scripture yet. And if 80,000 have come, probably some have come that speak a language that don't have the scripture yet. And how easy is it for us as, as, as white or as Christians, as people wanting to do translation, how easy is it for us to walk into Iraq and do that? It's not easy. So I started realizing there might be some opportunity here to connect with people that have left these hard to access countries to continue Bible translation right here in San Diego or in other major cities. So, so we are in the middle of an unprecedented refugee crisis. We see people coming from all these countries. You guys know the stories. You know how bad things are in Syria, Venezuela, uh, Somalia is basically a failed state at this point. Um, Myanmar has the Rohingya issue. Um, you guys know all that. And, and people are fleeing because it's just too bad for them to be there. Um, 70 million people now forcibly displaced right now. And it was, I have 2018 statistics, but it was 13.6 million of that just happened in, in 2018. And I think the number's gonna be pretty similar for 2019, uh, another 13 million or so. So it's, it's really happening. And I don't know if you guys have uh, taken the Perspectives on World Mission course, or if you've had that, no. Uh, one of the th key threads of that is that God uses people moving and migration to get his kingdom to grow and to find more people. And so we see that over history, and I think we're starting to see that now. As it's been hard to get gospel into these like closed-door places, those people are all leaving to places where the gospel is. And so a lot of them are coming you know, here and around to other historically Christian nations, and a lot of them are coming from Muslim countries where they're not having a chance to hear the gospel. Anyway, so uh, a little graphic of that. Yes, all those countries and people are coming to San Diego. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but from like 2008 to like last year, San Diego took more refugees to the resettlement program than any other US city did. We took about 2,300, 2,400 a year, and that was more than any other US city was taking at the time. So we have a really big pool of those people that have come officially 
legally through the resettlement agency program to come here. And we actually started taking refugees in San Diego in the 70s from Camp Pendleton through the, from, from Vietnam, right? And so that's how everything sparked, right? And as the services were set up to serve them, the services were in place, and then we kept bringing more and more people. Actually, World Vision had its first office, World Relief. World Relief had its first office in one of the churches, uh, I always blank on its name. Anyway, it's down south about two miles. Yeah, so they had their office there to process and help people come. So San Diego has been a key player in this for a long time. Um, and I did a little research. Who, who's in San Diego? Where, where are people from? All the places that the, the top 10, top, these countries all make the top like 30 list of the, of the open doors uh, watch list, right? So Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi, Somalia, and Eritrea. So I've met people from all these places, and, and we're looking to, to connect with them. So this is exciting for how we're thinking about doing, you know, promoting and keeping the kingdom growing in you know, present day with things going on. OK, so I'll tell you a little bit about something. One, one of the things that I've got to do while, I, while I've been here, uh, the Horn of Africa. So um, as I got connected here in San Diego about you know, four years ago, I got connected to a, a hub of people doing ministry to, to Muslim background people, so people from um, you know, Somalia, Eritrea, uh, Iran, Iraq, like those, those countries. And one of our connections uh, called me one day, and she said, you know, I know you want to do Bible translation for these, for these languages with no Bible, but do you guys ever do another one, like if the first one's not very good? <laughs> I said, well, if it's not very good, then it's not really doing its job. So I'm sure that that's something we look at. I said, well, my friend speaks a language that we're going to call Aham. My friend speaks Aham, and there was a Bible done you know, in the 70s, but they tell me that it's really confusing, and it's kind of like Shakespeare-ish, and it doesn't make any sense to them when they read it. And so I said, well, I'll start looking around and see what I know from inside the organization, what's going on with that, and see if something's going on. So, um, I started asking questions and learned that, yes, in fact, a team had just recently started a revision of the, of the Bible for, for the Aham language. Um, and one of the things that, because, because the people who speak Aham are Muslim, most of them, uh, any believers in Aham that uh, speak Aham are persecuted, they're oppressed, and they can't really be very public about their faith, and therefore it's hard for them to make connections with outsiders and hard to really be involved in the project. And so one of the problems the team was having was they didn't have enough uh, review committee, enough comprehension checkers that they could get in touch with that were willing to kind of stick their necks out and be a part of the project. So I said, well, I've got mother tongue speakers of Aham right here in San Diego. If you have some stuff that's been done, I can do a checking time with them and give that feedback back to you. And they said, yeah, like that, that would be really cool. So uh, they used a, a, an application that you know, our organization developed called Scripture Forge, and they put the text and the audio that they already had up on Scripture Forge. It's protected by, um, you, know, you have to be a user with a password to get in. So they gave me a username and a password. So I accessed the Aham Scripture and audio and sat down with the Aham speaker to let them read and hear the Aham and get their feedback. And so then um, uh, the first thing they did was they had done Jonah and Ruth. So we had Jonah and Ruth to look at. And uh, as uh, the, the first woman I started doing this with, she started saying, this is real. Like, of course, we're talking English. She's been here in America for a while. And so she speaks fine English. 
but her first language is Somali, still doing a lot of stuff in, I said Somali. It's a hot Somali, but <laughs> don't put it online. <clears throat> her first language is a hum. And uh, she said, this is so clear. Is the Bible supposed to be this clear? Like, I understand it, right? We're like, yeah, like, it is. It's supposed to be clear, right? And so she's like, this, this is just amazing. And so as we got through the book of Ruth, she stopped at the end and she said, you know, my people really need this because we do this. Like, we have the kinsman redeemer thing. Like, this is what we do. It's the, it's the brother's job to take care of the uncle's job. So she's like, this would be really powerful for my people. Um, and she also explained after we heard the end of Jonah that she never understood that Jonah, you know, the whole dynamic with the plant and Jonah's real attitude about what was going on. So it was really cool to see. So, um, yeah, so, and then, of course, I have my comprehension checking questions about, you know, m more understanding about how it's written and who it's for and all that kind of stuff. So I, I took all that stuff and gave feedback to the team. And when I got the feedback to the consultant on this project, he said, yeah, he's like, this is the best feedback we've had yet. Like, we haven't been able to really get good feedback yet from anyone. So all we have is our team so far. So to get feedback from a mother tongue speaker is really invaluable for us. So um, this is kind of how we see things going for the future of these projects in hard to access countries, is having people around the world that are connected to, to believers to get them access to this kind of stuff, um, to get feedback and keep the projects going where on the ground it's too sensitive or too hard to keep things going forward. Um, something else that's exciting is I have a connection in Italy where a lot of these AHAM speakers are going because it's close by. And so uh, he's, he's there working with a, a person from the, the IMB who's doing his own outreach to AHAM speakers. And he has a few that have become believers. And he wants to start sitting with them and getting a scripture in front of their eyes to get some feedback too. And so once we get him connected, he'll be able to do that. At the same time, I have a friend who lives in Columbus. And at his church, one of, one of their pastors has been reaching out to the AHAM community in Columbus and has now just had a few people become believers there in Columbus, Ohio. And so we're working for getting him you know, a user account to, to the same thing, to be able to sit with a group of AHAM speakers, get the feedback. And not only does it get feedback to the team, it exposes them to scripture in their own language that you know, God, God uses all the time. So we're seeing this kind of thing be the model for how we're working for you know, displaced people. And like I said, my, my title is diaspora. So diaspora just means scattered, you know, the scattered people. So uh, that's the kind of thing that we're doing. So we're trying to help people uh, in our organization who are working in these hard to access countries to be thinking more strategically about how they can engage people that have left their, the home language area and intentionally include them for contributing to and benefiting from scripture that they're, that they're working on right now. And so that's kind of what our my role is uh, here in San Diego. And, uh, and my wife's, uh, yes, she has a background in literacy, but also in uh, anthropology. And now she's been doing training in trauma healing. And so uh, there's a few different programs that help people walk through a lot of their trauma. And especially if they've come as refugees, you know, it's basically the definition of trauma is to, to, to be a refugee, is to have so much happen to you and to have to go on the journey. Um, and so she's gone through a lot of training on those programs on how to work with people that have trauma. And then something else that she's developed with a few other counselors in town is a, a program for people who are working with traumatized people on how to be trauma-informed. So as you work with traumatized people, this is really aimed at a lot of church and ministry workers. So as we work with traumatized people, how can we be trauma-informed so that we don't re-traumatize them, so we know what to expect, so that we can really love them in a way that they feel and not 
feel re-traumatized by our interaction with them. So that's kind of the different things that we're doing for, for Wycliffe and doing here in San Diego. I think that's it. Any questions? Yeah. I don't think I have anything about trauma care resourcing. Yeah. Yeah, she's been meeting with a group of girls from Syria that someone else has already had a strong connection with to do art and stuff like that. Because a lot of times, if you can focus on uh, creating or doing something, you're a lot more open to kind of let some feelings out. And then the processing happens as you create. And then you can talk about what you've created in a way that maybe you couldn't just volunteer with words. And so that's a good way to get people to talk through and think through their stories to do a little bit of healing. So that's kind of one small bit of what, of what Sam is doing. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as, it, as you could guess, uh, my job has been a lot of networking and discovery of who is where and how, and how we can connect them to scripture. So uh, a, a good prayer is that you know, God, will, God will be arranging it. You know, God will lead me to the right people. God will bring the right people to this kind of a team that can really get you know, scripture you know, moving forward and, and used and that kind of stuff. I know it's kind of broad, but that's what we need. We need God to arrange and make it happen. Well, thank you, Trevor. I appreciate what you do, and, and thanks for willing to uh, be willing to come and share that with us. Thank all y'all for coming tonight. That that we're that don't normally come on Wednesday night. So we are we're continuing our study in um, how the Bible that we have in our hands got into our hands uh, as we looked at canon over the last several weeks, uh, and we're moving into this this learning about. The transmission. How does it get from these old Greek and Hebrew manuscripts into 
English Bibles, and so this is a great introduction to that. Uh, so thank you very much. And um, we, I handed out, or the, the prayer sheet tonight is specifically um, on the, the nation of Burkina Faso. Um, so as we're, as we're thinking about countries that are being persecuted and places where it's hard to be a Christian, um, this one in particular has been difficult. I don't know if you've seen, I think I, think I have some statistics on there, but um, the, the government's basically non-existent now, uh, and the, the jihadist terrorists kind of run the north and the east side of the country, and um, so Christians are, are having a hard go at it. And just a couple weeks ago, uh, there, was, there was an attack in a church on a Sunday morning. They're gathered for church. The terrorists come in. They split the men and women up. They kill all the men, and then they kidnap the women, take them to wherever they're going, and so that's that's what you're dealing with when you gather for church um, in in places like Northeast Burkina Faso right now. So um, wanted to bring that to our attention because this is not a a rare thing uh, when when you think about the church worldwide. And so uh, uh, as we're as we're praying also for those refugees that are coming here, that Bibles can get into their hands. Can someone just pray for this the the nation of Burkina Faso tonight? Uh, as we close our time together. Austin, would you be willing to do that? Amen. Well, seven o'clock. Thank you, Trevor. And um, we'll see you Sunday.